Chapter 2, Part 2 of A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada. Chapter 2, Part 2, Theories of the Unit of Measure of Money. The circumstance that commodities are converted into gold only in ideas as prices, and that gold is therefore turned into money only in idea, gave rise to the theory of the ideal unit of measure of money. Since in the determination of prices, gold and silver serve only ideally as money of account, it was asserted that the names pound, shilling, pence, thaler, franc, etc., instead of denoting certain weights of gold and silver, or labor incorporated in some way, stood rather for ideal atoms of value. Thus, if, for example, the value of an ounce of silver should rise, it would contain more such atoms and would therefore have to be estimated and coined in a greater number of shillings. This doctrine, revived again during the last commercial crisis in England, and even voiced in Parliament in two separate reports, attached to the report of the Select Committee on the Bank Acts sitting in July 1858, dates from the end of the 17th century. At the time of the ascension of William III, the English mint price of an ounce of silver was five shillings, two pence, or one sixty-second of an ounce of silver was equal to a penny. Twelve of these pence were called a shilling. According to that standard, a piece of silver weighing, say, six ounces, would be coined into 31 coins, each called a shilling. But the market price of an ounce of silver rose above its mint price, from five shillings, two pence, to six shillings, three pence, or, in order to buy an ounce of silver bullion, six shillings, three pence, had to be paid. How could the market price of an ounce of silver rise above its mint price? when the mint price is merely a reckoning name for aliquot parts of an ounce of silver. The riddle was easily solved. Out of £5,600,000 of silver money which was in circulation at that time, four millions were worn out, clipped, and debased. A trial disclosed that £57,000 of silver which were supposed to weigh 220,000 ounces weighed only 141,000 ounces. The mint went on coining according to the same standard, but light-weighted shillings in actual circulation represented smaller parts of an ounce than their name implied. Hence, a greater quantity of these light-weighted shillings had to be paid in the market for an ounce of silver bullion. When a general recoinage was decided upon in consequence of the derangement that had been produced, Lowndes, the Secretary of Treasury, declared that the value of an ounce of silver had risen, and therefore it must henceforth be coined into six shillings three pence, instead of into five shilling two pence, as heretofore. His argument practically amounted to the assertion that the rise in the value of the ounce caused a fall in the value of its aliquot parts. His false theory, however, served merely as an embellishment for a just practical purpose. The government debts were contracted in light shillings. Were they to be paid in heavy ones? Instead of saying pay back four ounces of silver when you had received nominally five ounces but virtually only four, he said pay back nominally five ounces but reduce the metallic contents to four ounces and call a shilling what you had called four-fifths of a shilling heretofore. Thus Lowndes practically adhered to the metallic weight while theoretically he clung to the reckoning name. His adversaries, who clung only to the name and, therefore, declared the 25-50% to 50 lighter shilling to be identical with the full-weight shilling, maintained, on the contrary, that they adhered to the metallic weight. John Locke, who was an advocate of the new bourgeoisie in all forms, 
the manufacturers against the working classes and paupers, the commercial class against the old-fashioned usurers, the financial aristocracy against the state debtors, and who went so far as to prove in his own work that the bourgeois reason is the normal human reason, also took up the challenge against Lowen's. John Locke carried the day and money borrowed at ten of fourteen shillings to a guinea was repaid in guineas of twenty shillings. Footnote. Locke says among other things, quote, Call that a crown now, which before was but a part of a crown. An equal quantity of silver is always the same value with an equal quantity of silver. For if the abating one-twentieths of a quantity of silver of any coin does not lessen its value, the abating nineteen-twentieths of the quantity of the silver of any coin will not abate its value. And so a single penny, being called a crown, will buy as much spice or silk or any other commodity as a crown piece, which contains twenty times as much silver. Now all that may be done is giving a less quantity of silver the stamp and denomination of a greater. But tis silver and not names that pay debts and purchase commodities. End quote. Page 135 to 145. Pass him. If to raise the value of money means nothing but to give any desired name to an aliquot part of a silver coin, for example, to call an eighth part of an ounce of silver a penny, then money may really be rated as high as you please. At the same time, Locke answered Lowndes that the rise of the market price above the mint price was due not to the rise of the value of silver, but to its lighter silver coins. 77 clipped shillings do not weigh a particle more than 62 full-weighted ones. Finally, he pointed out with perfect right that, aside from the loss of weight in the circulating coin, the market price of silver bullion in England could rise to some extent above its mint price, since the export of silver bullion was allowed, while that of silver coin was prohibited. Page 54 to 116. Pass him. Locke was exceedingly careful not to touch upon the burning question of public debts, and no less carefully avoided the discussion of the delicate economic question, viz. the depreciation of the currency out of proportion to its real loss of silver, as was shown by the rate of exchange and the ratio of silver bullion to silver coin. We shall return to this question in its general form in the chapter on the medium of circulation. Nicholas Barbin in A Discourse Concerning Coining the New Money Lighter in answer to Mr. Locke's considerations, etc. London, 1696. Tried in vain to entice Locke to difficult ground. End of footnote. Sir James Stewart sums up the entire transaction as follows, quote, The state gained considerably upon the score of taxes, as well as the creditors upon their capitals and interest, and the nation, which was the principal loser, was pleased, because their standard, the standard of their own value, was not debased. End quote. Footnote. Stuart, Volume 2, page 154. End of footnote. Stuart thought that the nation would prove more alert with the further development of commerce. He was mistaken. About 120 years later, the same quid pro quo was repeated. It was just in the order of things that Bishop Berkeley, the representative of a mystical idealism in English philosophy, should have given a theoretical turn to the doctrine of the ideal unit of measure of money, something which the practical secretary to the treasury had failed to do. He asks, quote, whether the terms crown, livre, pound sterling, etc. are not to be considered as exponents or denominations of such proportion, namely proportions of abstract value as such, 
and whether gold, silver, and paper are not tickets or counters for reckoning, recording and transferring thereof, of the proportion of value, whether power to command the industry of others be not real wealth, and whether money be not in truth tickets or tokens for conveying and recording such power, and whether it be of great consequence what materials the tickets are made of. End quote. Footnote. The Queerist. Page 5, 6, and 7. The queries on money are generally clever. Among other things, Berkeley is perfectly right in saying that by their progress, the North American colonies, quote, make it plain as daylight that gold and silver are not so necessary for the wealth of a nation as the vulgar of all ranks imagine, end quote. End of footnote. Here we find a confusion, first of the measure of value and the standard of price, and secondly, of gold and silver as measures on the one hand and mediums of circulation on the other. Because precious metals can be replaced by tokens in the process of circulation, Berkeley comes to the conclusion that these tokens represent nothing, i.e. only the abstract idea of value. Sir James Stewart had so fully developed the theory of the ideal unit of measure of money that his successors, unconscious successors since they do not know him, have added to it neither a new version nor even a new example. Quote, money, which I call of account, is no more than an arbitrary scale of equal parts, invented for measuring the respective value of things vendable. Money of account, therefore, is quite a different thing from money coin, which is price. Footnote. Price means here real equivalent in the sense commonly employed by English economic writers in the 17th century, end of footnote, and might exist, although there was no such thing in the world as any substance which could become an adequate and proportional equivalent for every commodity. Money of account performs the same office with regard to the value of things that degrees, minutes, seconds, etc. do with regard to angles or as scales do to geographical maps or to plans of any kind. In all these inventions, there is constantly some denomination taken for the unit, the usefulness of all those inventions being solely confined to the marking of proportion. Just so the unit in money can have no invariable determinate proportion to any part of value, that is to say, it cannot be fixed to any particular quantity of gold, silver, or any other commodity whatsoever. The unit once fixed, we can, by multiplying it, ascend to the greatest value, the value of commodities, therefore depending upon the general combination of circumstances relative to themselves and to the fancies of men, their value ought to be considered as changing only with respect to one another. Consequently, anything which troubles or perplexes the ascertaining those changes of proportion by the means of a general, determinate, and invariable scale must be hurtful to trade. Money is an ideal scale of equal parts. If it be demanded what ought to be the standard value of one part, I answer by putting another question. What is the standard length of a degree, a minute, a second? It has none. But so soon as one part becomes determined by the nature of a scale, all the rest must follow in proportion. Of this kind of money, we have two examples. The Bank of Amsterdam presents us with the one, the coast of Angola with the other. End quote. Footnote. Stuart, Volume 2 page 154 and 299, First London edition of 1767, volume 1, page 526 to 531. Translator. End of footnote. Stuart speaks here simply of the part money plays in circulation as the standard of price and money of account. If different commodities are marked in the price list at 15 shillings, 20 shillings, 36 shillings, respectively, 
than I care, in fact, neither for the silver substance nor for the name of the shilling when comparing the magnitudes of their values. The ratios between the numbers 15, 20, 36 tell everything, and the number 1 has become the only unit of measure. Only the abstract proportion of numbers can at all serve as a purely abstract expression of proportion. In order to be consistent, Stuart should have dropped not only gold and silver, but their legal baptismal names as well. Since he does not understand the nature of the transformation of the measure of value into a standard of price, he naturally believes that the definite quantity of gold, which serves as a unit of measure, relates as a measure not to other quantities of gold, but to value as such. Since commodities appear as quantities of the same denomination through the conversion of their exchange values into prices, he denies that property of the measure which reduces them to one denomination. And since in this comparison of different quantities of gold, the quantity of gold which serves as a unit of measure is conventional, he does not see the necessity of fixing it at all. Instead of calling 1 360ths part of a circle degree, he might give that name to 1 1 80ths part. The right angle would then be measured by 45 degrees instead of 90. The acute and obtuse angles would be measured accordingly. Nevertheless, the measure of the angle would remain then, as before, first a qualitative definite mathematical figure, and second a quantitatively definite part of the circle. As for Stuart's economic illustrations, he refutes his own argument with one and does not prove anything with the other. The bank money of Amsterdam was, in fact, merely the reckoning name for Spanish doubloons, which retained their full weight by laying idly in the bank vaults. While the circulating coins became thinner from hard rubbing against the outer world, and as for the African idealists, we have to abandon them to their fate until critical travelers will tell us more about them. Footnote. On the occasion of the last commercial crisis, the ideal African money received loud praise from certain English quarters. After its seat was this time moved from the coast to the heart of Barbary, the freedom of the Berbers from commercial and industrial crisis was ascribed to the ideal unit of measure of their bars. Would it not have been simpler to say that trade and industry are the condito sine qua non of commercial and industrial crisis? End of footnote. The French assign it could be called an almost ideal money in Stuart's sense. National property assignation of 100 francs. To be sure, the use value which the assignation was supposed to represent, namely the confiscated land, was indicated here, but the quantitative definition of the unit of measure was forgotten, and the franc became a meaningless word. How much or how little land the assignation franc represented depended on the results of the public auctions. In practice, however, the assignation franc circulated as a token of value of silver money, and its depreciation was, therefore, measured by this silver standard. The period of the suspension of cash payments in the Bank of England was hardly more fruitful of war bulletins than of money theories. The depreciation of banknotes and the rise of the market price of gold above its mint price called forth again the doctrine of the ideal unit of money on the part of some of the advocates of the bank. Lord Castlereagh found the classical confused expression for the confused idea by speaking of the unit of measure of money as, quote, a sense of value in reference to currency as compared with commodities, end quote. When a few years after the Peace of Paris conditions permitted the resumption of cash payments, the same question which has been stirred up by Lowndes under William III came up, hardly changed in form. An enormous government debt, 
as well as a mass of private debts, accumulated in 20 years, fixed obligations, etc., had been contracted on the basis of depreciated banknotes. Were they to be paid back in banknotes of which £4,672.10 shillings, nominal, actually represented £100 of 22 karat gold? Thomas Atwood, a banker of Birmingham, came forth as Lowndes Redivivus. The creditors were to receive nominally as many shillings as had been nominally borrowed, but if about one seventy-eighth of an ounce of gold constituted a shilling according to the old standard of coinage, then say one ninetieth of an ounce should now be christened a shilling. Atwood's adherents are known as the Birmingham School of Little Shilling Men. The controversy over the ideal money unit, which had started in 1819, still went on in 1845 between Sir Robert Peel and Atwood, whose own wisdom, as far as the function of money as a measure is concerned, is exhaustively summed up in the following passage, in which, referring to Sir Robert Peel's controversy with the Birmingham Chamber of Commerce, he says, quote, The substance of your queries is, in what sense is the word pound to be used? To what will the sum one pound be equivalent? Before I venture a reply, I must inquire what constitutes a standard of value. Is three pounds seventeen shilling ten and a half pence an ounce of gold, or is it only the value of an ounce of gold? If three pounds seventeen shillings ten and a half pence be an ounce of gold, why not call things by their proper names, and, dropping the terms pounds, shillings, and pence, say ounces, pennyweights, and grains? If we adopt the terms ounces, pennyweights, and grains of gold as our monetary system, we should pursue a direct system of barter. But if gold be estimated as the value of three pounds seventeen shillings ten and a half pence per ounce, how is this that much difficulty has been experienced at different periods to check gold from rising to five pounds four shillings per ounce? And we now notice that gold is quoted at three pounds seventeen shillings nine pence per ounce. The expression pound has reference to value, but not a fixed standard value. The term pound is the ideal unit. Labor is the parent of cost and gives the relative value to gold or iron. Whatever denomination of words are used to express the daily or weekly labor of a man, such words express the cost of the commodity produced. End quote. Footnote The Currency Question The Gemini Letters, London, 1844. Page 260 to 272. Pass him. End of footnote. In the last words, the hazy conceptions of the ideal money measure melts away and its real meaning breaks through. The reckoning names of gold, pound sterling, shilling, etc. should be names for definite quantities of labor time, since labor time constitutes the substance and the intrinsic measure of values. These names would then actually represent definite proportions of value. In other words, labor time is maintained to be the true unit of measure of money. With this we leave the Birmingham School, but should add in passing that the doctrine of the ideal measure of money acquired new importance in the controversy over the question of the convertibility or non-convertibility of banknotes. If paper receives its name from gold or silver, then the convertibility of a note or its exchangeability for gold or silver remains an economic law, no matter what the civil law may be. Thus, a Prussian paper thaler, although legally inconvertible, would immediately depreciate if it were worth less than a silver thaler in ordinary trade, 
i.e. if it were not practically convertible. The consistent advocates of inconvertible paper money in England, therefore, sought refuge in the ideal measure of money. If the reckoning names of money, pound, shilling, etc., are names of certain quantities of atoms of value, of which a commodity absorbs or loses, now more, now less, in exchange for other commodities, then an English five-pound note, for example, is just as independent of its relation to gold as of that to iron and cotton. Since its title would no more imply its theoretical equality with a certain quantity of gold, or any other commodity, the demand for its convertibility, for its practical equality with a definite quantity of a specified thing, would be excluded by the very conception of the note. The theory of labor time as the direct measure of money was first systematically developed by John Gray. Footnote. John Gray, The Social System, A Treatise on the Principle of Exchange, Edinburgh, 1831. Compared with Lectures on the Nature and Use of Money, Edinburgh, 1848, by the same author. After the February Revolution, Gray sent a memorial to the provisional French government in which he instructs the latter that France is not in need of an organization of labor, but of an organization of exchange, of which the plan is fully worked out in his money system. Honest John did not suspect that 16 years after the appearance of his social system, a patent for the same discovery would be taken out by the ingenious Proudhon. End of footnote. He makes a national central bank ascertain through its branches the labor time consumed in the production of various commodities. The producer receives an official certificate of value in exchange for his commodity, i.e., he gets a receipt for as much labor time as his commodity contains. Footnote. Gray, The Social System, etc., page 63, quote, Money should be merely a receipt, an evidence that the holder of it has either contributed certain value to the national stock of wealth, or that he has acquired a right to the same value from someone who has contributed to it. End quote. End of footnote. And these banknotes of one week's labor, one day's labor, one hour's labor, etc., serve at the same time as a check for an equivalent in all other commodities stored in the bank warehouses. Footnote. An estimated value being previously put upon produce let it be lodged in a bank, and drawn out again, whenever it is required, merely stipulating, by common consent, that he who lodges any kind of property in the proposed national bank may take out of it an equal value of whatever it may contain, instead of being obliged to draw out the self-same thing that he put in. Page 68. End of footnote. This is the fundamental principle carefully worked out in detail and based throughout on existing English institutions. Under this system, says Gray, quote, to sell for money may be rendered at all times precisely as easy as it now is to buy with money. Production would become the uniform and never-failing cause of demand, end quote. Footnote, page 16, end of footnote. The precious metals would lose their privilege as against other commodities and take their proper place in the market beside butter and eggs and cloth and calico, and then the value of the precious metals will concern us just as little as the value of the diamond. End quote. Footnote. Gray. Lectures on money, etc. Page 182. End of footnote. Quote. Shall we retain our fictitious standard of value, gold, and thus keep the productive resources of the country in bondage? 
or shall we resort to the natural standard of value, labor, and thereby set our productive resources free? End of quote. Footnote, page 169, end of footnote. Labor time being the intrinsic measure of value, why would there be another external measure side by side with it? Why does exchange value develop into price? Why do all commodities estimate their value in one exclusive commodity, which is thus converted into a special embodiment of exchange value into money? That was the problem which Gray had to solve. Instead of solving it, he imagined that commodities could be related directly to each other as products of social labor, but they can relate to each other only in their capacity of commodities. Commodities are the direct products of isolated independent private labors, which have to be realized as universal social labor through their alienation in the process of private exchange. That is to say, labor based on the production of commodities becomes social labor only through universal alienation of individual labors. But by assuming that the labor time contained in commodities is directly social labor time, Gray assumes it to be common labor time or labor time of directly associated individuals. Under such conditions, a specific commodity, like gold or silver, could not confront other commodities as the incarnation of universal labor, and exchange value would not be turned into price. But on the other hand, use value would not become exchange value, products would not become commodities, and thus the very foundation of the capitalistic system of production would be removed. But that is not what Gray has in mind. Products are to be produced as commodities, but are not to be exchanged as commodities. He entrusts a national bank with the carrying out of this pious wish. On the one hand, society, through the bank, makes individuals independent of the conditions of private exchange, and on the other, it allows them to go on producing on the basis of private exchange. The logic of things, however, compels Gray to do away with one condition of capitalistic production after another, although he wishes to reform only the money system, which results from the exchange of commodities. Thus he transforms capital into national capital, footnote, quote, the business of every country ought to be conducted on a national capital, end quote, John Gray, the social system, etc., page 171, end of footnote, land into national property, footnote, quote, the land to be transformed into national property, end quote, page 298, end of footnote, and if his bank is to be watched closely, it will be found that it not only receives commodities with one hand and issues certificates for work delivered with the other, but that it regulates production as well. In his last work, Lectures on Money, in which Gray is anxious to demonstrate that his labor money is a purely bourgeois reform, he gets tangled up in even more glaring contradictions. Every commodity is directly money. That was Gray's theory, deducted from his incomplete and therefore false analysis of commodities. The organic structure of labor money, the national bank, and the wear docks are mere fantastic visions in which the dogma is made by a ledger domain to appear to us as a universal law. The dogma that a commodity is money, or that the isolated labor of the individual contained in it is direct social labor, will of course not become true through the mere fact that a bank believes in it and carries on operations accordingly. It is more likely that bankruptcy would play in that case the part of the practical critic. What remains concealed in Gray's writings and hidden from himself as well namely that labor money is a well-sounding economic phrase for the pious wish to get rid of money, and with money of exchange value, and with exchange value of commodities, 
and with commodities of the capitalistic mode of production, was clearly expressed by some English socialists, of whom a few preceded and others followed Gray. Footnote. See, for example, W. Thompson, An Inquiry into the Distribution of Wealth, etc., London, 1827, Bray, Labor's Wrongs and Labor's Remedy, Leeds, 1839. End of footnote. But it remained for Mr. Proudhon and his school to preach in all earnest the degradation of money and the exaltation of the commodity as the gist of socialism, and thus to reduce socialism to an elementary misconception of the necessary connection between commodity and money. Footnote. Alfred Dedimont's De la Réforme des Banques, Paris, 1856, may be considered as a compendium for this melodramatic theory of money. End of footnote. End of chapter 2, part B, Theories of the Unit of Measure of Money. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada.